Well, good morning to you. This morning we're going to continue with our study of Christ of the Book. This morning we're going to be looking at Titus. Next week we're going to look at 2 Timothy. And then after that, Revelation. And we'll be done with this series that we have been working on for the past uh, over a year, I guess now, with Christ of the Book. In the body of the book, it's written of me, the Lord Jesus proclaims. And so we believe that every book of the Bible, not only is he the author, but each one is about him. In Genesis, he's creator. In Exodus, he's deliverer. Leviticus, he's lawgiver. All the way through to Revelation. This morning we're in Titus. And in Titus, we find that he is our blessed hope. Now like just about every other book that we, we've gone over, there are multiple places where you could say, this is the Lord Jesus. Uh, just last week in 1 Timothy, He is Savior. He is, he is our hope. Uh, pretty much do the same thing here in the book of Titus. Here we have the Lord Jesus returning for His church, His body. He is our blessed hope. And that Titus 2.13, as Nathan read a little while ago, Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only does this verse talk about the coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, which is... Our blessed hope and as we get closer and closer and closer to that event uh, we're going to see more and more and more why it is our blessed hope as days get more and more perilous as uh, we're going to look at next week in 2nd Timothy uh, chapter 3 but as we found out last week in 1st Timothy chapter 4 there's going to be a falling away there's going to be seducing spirits. There's going to be doctrines of devil, devils. So as we get closer to that blessed hope, as we get closer to that catching away, the rapture of the church, there's a reason why it is our blessed hope. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 17, talks about the fact that the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are, verse 17, then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. And that portion of Scripture ends with the fact that we are to comfort one another with these words, with this exciting proclamation. The rapture of the church is going to take place. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. It's also talking about the rapture. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Isn't that great news? That this corrupting is going to put an incorruption, this mortal is going to put on immortality. Isn't it interesting how Paul's, his last letters, both to, to Timothy and to Titus, the major themes of all of those was the coming of the Lord Jesus for you and for me and the rapture of the church. It's because they were expecting it. They were looking forward.
forward to it. But also that verse 13 emphasizes the deity of Christ, that He is God. Looking for that blessed hope for the coming of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's who He is. Christ is God Himself. God incarnate. You say, Pastor, they've been talking about the coming of the Lord for over 2,000 years now. Well, just think how much closer we are. They were expecting it back then. I believe when Paul was writing all of this, I believe when Paul was talking about this great news, I think he was expecting to be caught up in the rapture. I'm sure the early church thought, though, it, it can't be long now. It can't be long now. But I got news for you. It can't be long now. With all the technology, with all the things that are happening around the world, if you don't believe me, just, well, I would say watch the news, but I don't recommend that to anybody. But when you stop and think of all the things that are taking place and the agendas that are used to be on the back burner, but boy, they're now boiling. We're close. We are so close. I'm not sure this is really an indication of how close we are. I'm not smart enough to watch Jeopardy. It always makes me feel dumb, so I never watch it. But did anybody see that episode just recently? where the question was uh, our Father who art in heaven and the question was what is his name there in Matthew 6 talking about the Lord's Prayer something that we were all taught in, well I was taught it in grade school that the Pledge of Allegiance we started out every every morning reciting the Lord's Prayer and saying the Pledge of Allegiance those three contestants missed it. Not only did they not get it right, they didn't even try to answer it. They looked like a bunch of deer in the headlights. And I, I tell you, the most startling thing was that buzzer. They missed it. They didn't even try to get it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They missed it. Again, I don't know if that's an indication of how Biblically illiterate, just those three were. And anybody else who's ever been on Jeopardy would have gotten that. But I'm telling you, those three didn't get it. And you would think, well, and some of the things that people were saying, one guy said, I'm an atheist, and I knew that. So it kind of tells you how, how far down the tubes we really have come. Or, not coming. I don't, I don't consider that coming. Paul's next letter to Timothy, his final letter to Timothy, is he is preparing to be executed. He's been arrested. Again, the letter to Titus, he's out just like he was out of Roman prison in 1 Timothy and out ministering. And Titus, he's, he's doing the same. By the time he is he's writing 2 Timothy, Back to writing to Timothy again, we we find him talking about 
that there is a crown of righteousness reserved for those who love his appearing. How important it is that the church, which is his body, welcomes, is excited about, is looking for the return of the glorified head. He is the head of the body. You're part of the body. And there is a crown of righteousness reserved for those who love his period. And I hope this morning that you love his period. I hope this morning the thought of Christ coming back, it is not an oh no, but it's an oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because he is coming. The book of Titus is really a conduct manual with the idea that Christ's appearing for the church is soon. Here's how you should then live. As a matter of fact, what Paul is writing when he writes to Titus here, uh, he's writing to him on the Isle of Crete, which is an extremely immoral island. And his instructions to Timothy is to set things in order. He leaves him there on this island. He gives him instructions to set things in order. Now, that's a pretty tall order when you stop and think of how immoral, how difficult, how bad things were on the Isle of Crete. He was to set things in order. He was to ordain elders in every little town there in Crete. It was a tall order. But I guarantee you, Titus was the right man. As a matter of fact, I, I get the impression that, that Titus was as, he was as tough as nails. That he was the kind of man that he just... It's a good thing he was a believer. Good thing that he loved the Lord Jesus. It's a good thing that his heart's desire was to serve God. In Acts chapter 15, in Galatians chapter 2, it was Titus that Paul took with him down to Jerusalem to confront the apostles and those who kept sending people up to, to uh, Antioch and, and, other, and other places, telling them you have to be circumcised, you have to obey the law of Moses. And it was Titus who had not been circumcised who refused to be circumcised based on the gospel of the grace of God that Paul said, let's go down. And Titus went down and no flinching at all. He goes and he confronts them. So what a, what a tremendous man this Titus was. This young pastor serving in, every, in this very immoral and dangerous area. God's word tells us there in Titus, that they were evil beasts. Evil beasts. That's pretty descriptive. That they were idle gluttons. Slow bellies. They were idle gluttons. They'd sit around looking for trouble to get into. Idle gluttons. They were liars. You could tell when they were lying because their lips would be moving. That was, that was a, the conditions that, of that place that Titus got sent into. Titus, you go and you straighten this place out. 
difficult, difficult situation. But Titus 2.11 tells us something that's interesting. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, that, that's a, an extremely important dispensational Scripture that we probably need to spend a whole lot of time on. We're not this morning. Really, a whole sermon needs to be dedicated to that verse and the fact that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men when we know that the gospel, the kingdom gospel, had not gone into all the world, but it got uh, put in abeyance. And so here we have this gospel going to the whole world Paul talks about that in Colossians. He talks about that in Romans. How everybody had heard the gospel of the grace of God. One of the things that Christ told them in Matthew 24 concerning the gospel of the kingdom is that that gospel is going to go into all the world and then shall the end come. Well, the end didn't come. He even says here, when, when the, as the gospel of the kingdom goes out, that talking to those that are going to be alive during that time, you will not have had a chance to go to all the cities of Israel before he comes back. Because they're only going to have seven years to do that. So this here is extremely important dispensational distinctive that we could spend quite a bit of time on. But that's, that's not what I want to stress this morning. But from that verse, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, even those on the Isle of Crete that was such an immoral, such a difficult place to minister. When I read that, it confirms in my heart and in my mind that where sin abounds, grace does not go back. That's the thing that we should take from that and say, praise God. That no matter how difficult the situation, no matter how dangerous the situation, that we're set abounds. God's grace much more abounds. Titus chapter 1. Remember when we were studying Ephesians? We said that you could. You could study Ephesians and the three words that sort of outline Ephesians is sit, walk, and stand. We're seated with Christ in the heavens. You know, we're to walk as children of light. When you've done all to stand, you stand with the whole armor of God. So sit, walk, and stand pretty much is a summary of the book of Ephesians. A summary of the book of Titus. Maybe one of these days we'll go back to Maybe that's going to be our next entire Bible study is we you outline each one of those books. But here in Titus, it is rebuke, speak, and maintain. You rebuke those believers that were causing division and trouble. Uh, you, you speak sound doctrine. You teach sound doctrine. And you maintain good works. That was the message of this letter to Titus. You rebuke those that need to be rebuked. You speak sound doctrine. You don't back down from teaching sound doctrine. Doctrine is important. Folks, the purpose of the church to come together is in order, order to hear the Word of God, to hear teaching. Worship is, is, is the music and, and, and the testimonies and all the other aspects of that. Yes, that's part of worship. 
But the primary part of coming together is to hear the Word of God proclaimed. That's what Titus was learning from the Apostle Paul that he had to do. So Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, the servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and acknowledging the truth which is after godliness. Paul here is saying, I'm an apostle for those who are saved, those who know God. I am called to be an apostle on their behalf so that I can tell them exactly what God's word says concerning this present dispensation. Verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. This verse has always intrigued me. This verse, I think, is just a just gives me such hope and, and goosebumps every time I read it. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. You know that word hope. Whenever I mention the word hope, our, our dear brother Neil Wells would always catch me as, if, if I didn't describe hope properly, uh, he would always say something. Right, Marsha? He would, he would shake my hand and, and squeeze it, and, and he would make sure that you need, you, you, you need to describe hope a little better. I wish you wouldn't use that word hope. And he would, and I, I okay, Neil, let's, let's talk about that. And we talked a little bit about it. Uh, but it uses the word hope. But this word here has much more assurance associated with it. In the hope of eternal life. I mean, there's, there's two ways to use the word hope. There's the way that I use it as I'm driving home this afternoon. And I tell Faye, I hope I can take a nap today. That, that's a hope. It's a, an uncertain hope, but it's probable. It's probable. It's a hope that's based on human conditions. It might happen. It might not. It's something that I strongly wish for this afternoon. That's a hope. Then there's the hope that's not based on human conditions, but it's based on the absolute promise of God. That it is not probable, it is certain. It is an assurance. It is a truth that we are convinced will be realized because of our faith in Christ. That's the kind of hope that he's talking about here. That's the kind of hope that Neil would always make sure that I describe to you. That it's that assurance that we have in God. It's not a hope that's based on human wishes, desires. Actually, it's a hope that's based on the oath and promise of God. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about that, that same type of hope. That that hope that we get from God is the hope, according to Hebrews chapter 6, that we anchor our soul to. We anchor our soul to that hope. And there in Hebrews 6, it also talks about the fact 
that it's a promise from God because he cannot. Matter of fact, look at Hebrews 6. I want to read it to make sure we get that full impact. Start with verse 18. And this has to do with the promise that God made to Abraham concerning the heritage, concerning the blessings that were to come upon Israel. Look at verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. You want to know something God can't do? People say, can God do everything? No, He can't. He can't lie. It's impossible for Him to lie. I'm hoping that brings some assurance. But by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who had fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which endureth unto that within the veil. That's that hope that God gives, that assurance that God gives each and every one of us, we can anchor our soul to that truth. In the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now, the part of that verse that intrigues me the most, I mean, I'm glad we have eternal life. I'm glad for that assurance. And it comes to us from a God who cannot, cannot lie. But as I read that verse, you know what question pops into my mind? Who did he promise? Who did he promise? That he promised before the world began. Who did he tell before creation about the eternal life that you and I were going to have? You talk about certainty. He promised it to himself. Promised it to himself. Folks, I don't know about you, but that just about causes me to get raptured up. That's exciting to know. And that hope, that promise, that certainty, that assurance that we are going to enjoy eternal life has been vested in Christ Jesus. It's been vested in Him. Do I know that I have eternal life because I am such a nice guy? Not hardly. Is it because of all my works? Is it because of my deeds or your deeds? No. The hope of eternal life that I have, that assurance, is because of the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ. It is because of His faithfulness, never my faithfulness. And I hope, I know it does for me, and I hope it does for you, that it causes you to go, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. It's vested in Christ Jesus. But hath in due time manifested his word, verse 3, but hath in due times manifested 
His word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And again, just like that other verse about the gospel is preached to all men, um, that verse there deserves our our long attention just talking about that mystery, that special revelation that was given to the Apostle Paul concerning this present dispensation, what he was to preach, the commandment that he was given by God. Both in Galatians 1, 11 and 12 talks about it. Ephesians 3, 6 through 8 talks about that special revelation that was given to Paul. It was part of that uh, the mystery that was not revealed until it was revealed to him. That's what he's talking about there. But it's now been manifested. It's now been revealed. Its word has been revealed through preaching which is committed unto me. That mystery which is the saving gospel for this present dispensation. Verse 5 it says, for, for this cause I left you in Crete. Titus was up to the task. And then he talks about the qualifications for, for elders. One of those qualifications is that, that they be found blameless as stewards of God. The word steward there is oikonomos. It's the same word that we use for dispensation for those who are dispensers of the truth of God's word. Elders, listen to me. That is such an important, important role that you have here at Bible Fellowship is understanding that mystery, that, that word of truth that was committed to Paul, who committed it to Timothy, who committed it to Titus, and he encouraged Timothy to share with all of those. You teach faithful men who can then teach other faithful men, who can teach other faithful men. That was God's plan, purpose, and program. How absolutely important is that we be the stewards of God, dispensing that truth that was given to the Apostle Paul concerning this present church age, this present dispensation. A lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. It's important that men be ordained who can defend the faith. This is what Titus was to do there in Crete. But that's the kind of man that God was looking for. That's the kind of man that God was going to use in Crete. The verses 10 following shows you the kind of people who were there on the Isle of Crete. Even believers. Even people who profess to know God. But Paul says, I'm not sure you do. Verse 10, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. Those Jews that were there, they kept things roused up. They kept the visitors constantly swirling around them, whose mouths must be stopped. You're talking about rebuke, whose mouths must be stopped. Titus, your job is to speak truth without flinching. Your job is to tell this group of people who are congregating, who are coming together, the truth of God's Word. Their mouths must be stopped. The information, 
the things that they're teaching, the things that they're preaching, the things that they are doing is not glorifying to God. Titus, your role as the pastor of this church is to set things in order. Verse 12, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Christians are always liars, evil beasts, and idle gluttons. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Straighten them out, Titus. Don't let that continue. You know what it does? You know what it takes to do that? Courage. But also, you've got to know the Word of God, too. You have to be able to recognize error. More Titus could do that. But it also takes courage. I'll tell you where, where there's no room in the pulpit. What there's no room for in the pulpit. There is absolutely no room for, can't you just all be can't we all just believe whatever it is that we want to believe? Can't you just believe your thing and I'll believe my thing and let's just sort of meet in the middle? That's not scriptural. And that's what I take from what Paul was telling Titus here. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Because see, that's what a lie will do. You go all the way back to the garden. Because that's exactly what Satan did. He introduced a lie. Introduced a lie. He added to the word of God. When Eve told Satan what it was that God had said to Adam. Right from the get-go, Satan questioned God's word. And it has not stopped. Exactly what they were doing here. They were adding to God's word. Look at Colossians chapter 2, real quick. Kind of give you an idea because he addresses that in, in Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 2. <coughs> Start with verse 16, Charles. Because this is what was happening with these Judaizers that were going up north, these people that were trying to mixed law and grace, those that were trying to bring up a, a, a false, not a false gospel, another gospel. Because they had been preaching another gospel at one time, the gospel of the kingdom. In Galatians 2, or Galatians 1, when Paul says, uh, if any man preach another gospel than what we preach, let him be accursed. Uh, he, he was talking about another gospel that had been preached had been delivered, but was no longer to be delivered. Had to do with the kingdom gospel. With all the works associated with it. Now, he's saying, that's got to stop. If, if they preach any other gospel, then what we've preached, let them be accursed. Again, I say, let them be accursed. What were they, what were they preaching? What were they teaching? Colossians, he addresses that. Verse, verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of, or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. See, those are all things that Judaism were into. That's all the things that, that they, were, they went by. They're, those traditions 
were important, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. You're already perfect in Christ. Those things are a shadow during the kingdom program, during the kingdom, the thousand year reign, so much of that is gonna find its fulfillment and will no longer be a shadow, but will be exercised in reality as the one that this was talking about is going to be ruling and reigning with a rod of iron during that time. That, that's, that's what he's talking about here. But you, you're the body of Christ. You are in Christ. You're already perfect. You already stand righteous in Him. Those things have no bearing on your future. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. That's all part of what the Judaizers were doing. That's all part of these of the circumcision were bringing in. These were all the, the had a, an idea of being religious, having an idea of the idea of being spiritual, but they weren't. They were dragging in false truths that do not pertain to this present dispensation of worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which which he had not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Not holding the head, Christ Jesus, in the proper position, the proper authority. Wherefore, you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of this world. Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. That's what he's telling Titus here in Titus. Stop that. Don't let them get away with that. That's a false humility. That's a false doctrine. That's confusing law and grace, and the church continues to do that today. So rebuke them. Rebuke them. That do that. First chapter 2, but speak sound doctrine. And then he says, for the older men, be sober, temper, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. You elder, elder women also. You be in behavior as becomes holiness. Not false accusers, not giving them much mind. Teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, and to love their children. Listen, older women, you have a responsibility. You've got to be really careful. I, I realize that. To share your advice and your experience with the younger women so they know how they are to love their husbands because I am the first to admit sometimes we're not very lovable. No amens. <laughs> but even to love your children, there is a godly manner in which you love you, you need to love your children. And I think it has to do with discipline. It has to do with punishment. It has to do with correction. It has to do with things that sometimes a mama just does not want to do. Fortunately, I had a mama that didn't mind doing that. 
But a lot of moms, you need to learn it's okay to spank that little precious one. Sometimes it's okay to say, no, don't do that. And do it in such a manner that they know you mean business. But see, you older women, God's Word tells you that that's responsibility is on you. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. By the way, obedient to your own husband. If you don't have, it's not obedient to men. Men, except when it comes to preaching and teaching, yeah, a preaching and congregation, that, that falls on men. Uh, but it's obedient to your own husband. You have no obligation to be obedient just because a man comes and tells you something. I don't think that's scriptural. But your own husband, yeah, you have a responsibility. But your own husband has a responsibility to love you as Christ loves the church. And that's a big responsibility too. Likewise, young men, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing myself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity. Chapter 2 is all about maintaining good works. Now, we are big on preaching the truth of God's Word, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that out of yourselves is a gift of God, not of... I'm glad this was not Jeopardy. I was... <laughs> not the works. Lest any man should say you guys are doing well on Jeopardy. Our, our, our works do not save us. Our works do not keep us saved. Our salvation is all based on the finished work of Christ. And we rejoice in that truth. But we are created under good works. And that's what Paul kept stressing here to Titus. Verse 7. In all things, I lost my spot there. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. Drop down to verse 14. Zealous of good works. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. In every good work. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Be careful to maintain good works over and over. Again, good works that please God, that glorify God, is absolutely imperative for the church, the body of Christ, to exercise those. But not to get you saved. Not to keep you saved. But because you are saved. And you love God. And you, you love the fact that He saves to the uttermost. Paul uh, addressing this young Titus concerning that ministry there at Titus. He knew people were watching. He knew this corrupt and moral island was full of people that was going to be watching how they lived their lives. And he wanted to make sure that they understood how important it was that they be an example of God's love, His grace, His mercy, His holiness, His righteousness. That's what he's stressing here for them. 
and looking. And verse 13, and looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He is our great God. God in contrast. The one we worship is the Lord Jesus. Make no mistake when it comes to that. We recognize, we accept, we promote, we preach the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. There are several places in Pauline epistles where we're told to rebuke. Next week, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy. But let's look there real quick. Let's go back and look at 2 Timothy. Chapter 4. And we'll talk a little bit more about this next, next week. Chapter 4. Verse 2. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering or patience and doctrine. Now, if you're going to reprove someone of something, if you're going to rebuke someone of something, what did you have to do in order to get to that point? You had to judge their actions. You had to judge their actions. I guarantee you the scripture, had Jeopardy used that scripture, judge not everybody would have got that one. They, that is the verse that everybody knows. Judge not lest thou be judged. But according to the same parameters that you used to judge, they're going to be used against you. That's what Matthew 7 is talking about. And before, and before Matthew 7 is over, it's talking about the need to, to inspect everyone's fruit of what sort of work it is. So right there, it tells them that it, you have to be a fruit inspector. You have to judge them by their works. It's not your idea of what's right and wrong. It's what God's Word, what its idea of right and wrong. But rebuke with all authority. Whose authority? Well, I just said it. It's that authority right there. And put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man. Sometimes that's difficult. Isn't it? That's kind of difficult. I mean, I never speak evil of any of you, but I need to remember that verse. Speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in might, malice, and envy, hateful and hating one another. Look at verse 4. Wow. What a difference. What a difference. 
But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward men. That's who he used to be. Disobedient, foolish, lustful, living in malice, hateful, hating one another. But then the kindness and love of God appeared. What a difference the gospel makes in our lives. Amen. Amen. What a difference the fact that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again makes in our lives. How thankful I am for that. Verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us with the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Ghost. Not the renewing of. The Holy Spirit doesn't need renewing. But he does the renewing. By the washing of regeneration and the water. It has to do with that cleansing power that God can bring about in your life when by faith you believe. Not by works of righteousness. This tells us, this points to the fact that it's all God's work and not our own. And that ought to make you go, man, am I glad. Verse 6, which he has shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified, declared righteous, that's what justified means, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that hope of eternal life is based on what? God's promise. And he can't lie. And it was a promise he made to himself before the world began. Am I the only one that finds that, my Lord, moving, praiseworthy? It certainly is. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for that salvation that we have in Christ. Father, we gather here this morning to glorify Him and no one else. We come to exalt Him and absolutely no one else. Father, we come recognizing that it's because of the finished and complete work of Christ on Calvary's cross that payment in full has been made for our sins. Father, we thank You for the cross and we thank you that the tomb is empty. That we serve a risen Savior. And I pray this morning that every person who's gathered here today, by faith, they believe that. That they have trusted in that work of Christ to be payment in full for their sin debt. And Father, the moment that we believe that, we are placed into the body of Christ. That regeneration takes place. That washing takes place. That cleansing takes place that only can be brought about by the perfect Son of God. And Father, I pray every person here by faith believes that. But if there's not, I pray, Father, before they walk out these doors, that they will trust you to save you. Thank you for loving us. 
Thanking you for promising us, promising us heaven. Thank you for promising us that eternal life. That we rejoice and we are guaranteed because you are a God who cannot lie. And you've promised that to us. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. Amen. Let's stand and be dismissed this morning. As we close in, in prayer.